This is Rachel from the Cornell Advocacy Project, a student organization dedicated to providing an education in advocacy to anyone with an internet connection. Welcome back to Speak Now, Series 1, Dismantling Division. On today's episode, Crashing the Party, we're joined by former U.S. Representative Justin Amash, who served in Congress from 2011 to 2020, representing Michigan's 3rd Congressional District. In 2019, Representative Amash left the Republican Party, becoming the only libertarian ever to serve in the House. Since that time, he has been outspoken about the dangers of partisan hostilities, using his expertise to advocate for the rights of all Americans. Thank you, Representative Amash, for joining us today to discuss political polarization. Thanks, Rachel. Happy to be here. I want to start today's discussion by giving some context and asking you about your run for office initially in 2011. When you ran for office and when you were elected, what did you hope to achieve on behalf of your community and what inspired you to run? Well, what inspired me to run um, was really, I I think, ultimately my dad's story. Mm. Um, He came here as a refugee and came with very little, almost nothing. I was very poor. He was Palestinian Christian refugee. And, you know, he used to tell us when we were growing up that in this country, you could be successful, you could provide for your family. Mm -hmm. If you worked hard, and it didn't matter what your background was, it didn't matter where you came from, or what your ethnicity was, or your religion. And I really took that to heart as a kid. I was like, wow, this country really is amazing that Mm -hmm. anyone can come here. My dad can come here really poor um, and with absolutely nothing. And he can, you know, own a small business, uh, which is what what he was doing when we were kids. So, you know, I always thought that was really important that that we lived in a country that provided so much opportunity Mm. and and that we lived in a free society. And so one of the reasons I ran for office, I think maybe the main reason is I wanted to preserve that. And I, I wanted to go to the state legislature at first. I wasn't, in, I wasn't running for Congress the first time. I ran for the state house mm-hmm. um, and I was successful. And the reason I wanted to run for office was so that I could go and be that independent voice for people and try to uphold the principles and values that I thought made this country a great place. That's really moving. And I really identify with what you talked about, about preserving those freedoms and and that being really important. So I want to ask, because we're the advocacy project and we talk a lot about advocacy, do you see yourself as an advocate for those freedoms? And do you think congressional representatives in general are advocates and serve in that role? Yeah, I do see myself as an advocate. You know, the, the, the primary job of a representative, of course, is to go and represent your constituents mm-hmm. and to do it within the bounds of the Constitution. Um, so you have uh, very much a representational role. Um, you, you're supposed to go and, and try to represent their interests, but they do elect you to use your judgment. It's not just a, uh, a direct democracy sort of situation where I poll all of my constituents and find out what they think. Um, I tell them what my principles are and they vote for me and then I go to represent them. Um, but there is um, an, an advocacy role as well because you are um, privy to information and ideas and resources that um, maybe they're, they're not privy to. I mean, they're, uh, people are busy. They have their own lives. They're working every day. They're not thinking about every nuance of policy. So it's your job also as a representative, when you think something is a good idea or there's some change that should be made to go and advocate for that and to go to your constituents and say, hey, here's the idea I have. And, um, and I think it's important that we, we do this thing. And here's why I think it's important and then have a conversation with them. Yeah, you, so you can't just be a person who sits and waits for, for your constituents to tell you what to do. You also have to use your own insights based on your experience to advocate for things and say, you know, this is what I think we should do. And at the same time, listen to your constituents and hear them out and have a discussion about it. Yeah, yeah, I absolutely agree. I think that's a really important role that our congressional representatives serve in. 
And yeah, and I would say just to finish up your mm -hmm. like related to your question. I don't think most members of Congress these days are very good at that. Um, oh. I, I don't think they're very good at, at either aspect at, at mm -hmm. being, you know, representatives of the people or of being advocates for good ideas. And um, there are a lot of reasons for that. And we can talk about that during this conversation. But I, I, they've become much more parts of the entertainment industry than than anything else. Uh, that's a really important component of today's discussion that I want to touch on with you later, because um, mm -hmm. I, I, I think that's something uh, important to flesh out. Um, but first, I want to talk a little bit about your advocacy in Congress over the course of your career, and specifically how you view Congress and the role that representatives serve. So in an April 2020 Q&A with the New York Times, you described our current political climate as a partisan death spiral a phrase that you also used in your July 4th, 2019 Washington Post op-ed. Could you define this death spiral more concretely and talk about what political polarization is, specifically in the context of Congress? Sure. When I say partisan death spiral, I mean that there's a sort of feedback loop that causes partisanship and furthers partisanship. And the more partisanship you have in Congress, the more you get. Mm -hmm. uh, what, what ends up happening is members of Congress take really partisan stances. Um, constituents at home then feed off of that and they say, oh, well, it must be that the other side is really bad because my member of Congress is saying that. And then the members of Congress hear their constituents saying it mm -hmm. and they hear you know, media personalities saying it, oh, like, you know, the other side is so bad, and then it feeds back up to the members of Congress. So like it's a, there's just this feedback loop. And it's furthered by the fact that Congress has become so centralized, mm. which is to say that the Speaker of the House and the minority leader have incredible power relative to the other members, especially the Speaker of the House. And I've been very critical of speakers on both sides of the aisle, both Republican speakers and the current Democratic speaker. These speakers have assumed so much power that members of Congress really don't participate in the process anymore. And what you have now is a system where ideas are dictated to us. There's a proposal that's dictated to members of Congress, and there's no um, process for discovering outcomes. We as members of Congress, or I'm a former member of Congress now, but members of Congress are not um, able to amend legislation very easily, for example. Wow. Um, it used to be in the old days that we could, uh, a number of times during the course of a term, just come to the House floor and offer amendments. These days, that's gone. Since May 2016, there have not been amendments offered on the House floor in that way. So you have a really top-down structure. And this sort of centralization really feeds into partisanship because when the members of Congress don't feel like they are going to participate in the legislative process, they participate in the inter entertainment business because they mm -hmm. have they have no other thing to really do. You know, they they can't suggest legislative ideas that will actually come to the House floor, so they spend their time on the media circuit just ripping the other side. And uh, I like to say, when you can't debate policies you debate personalities. That's really what's going on in Congress today. That centralization seems like a really, really big issue when you're trying to advocate for and represent a community. Um, how yes. did this centralization and this partisan death spiral impact your ability to serve your community in Congress? It had a significant impact. Um, when I first got to Congress, we had Speaker John Boehner, and I did not think he was a very good speaker. But in retrospect, he was actually the, the best of the speakers I've served under. And I still don't think he was a very good speaker. But there were still some opportunities, occasional opportunities, where we could come to the House floor and offer ideas. Um, I was able to persuade him a couple times, at least, to um, put my ideas on the House floor for a vote. Um, sure, it was, you know, it involved his swearing at me and, and all sorts of other things. You know, he was, he wow. was a tough guy. He was a tough guy, but I preferred a tough guy who would 
get really upset with you or, you know, curse you out every once in a while, but still allow you to offer some ideas on the house floor. Now he wasn't very good at it. I mean, if you, if you think back historically, even he ran a pretty closed top-down sort of system compared to what we would think would be the norm historically for Congress. But nonetheless, it was more open than it is today. And so as the years have gone on, you know, as, as we got to about 2014, 2015, it became pretty clear that it would be very difficult to get any ideas onto the House floor. And this has a, this has a real impact on our constituents because constituents are always coming to town halls or messaging me and saying, hey, why don't you offer this idea? Or you didn't vote for this bill, but, but if you didn't want that bill, then why didn't you suggest some alternative? And the point is, we're not in a position to really suggest alternatives. I mean, mm. we can spend our time working on alternatives as members of Congress, but when there's no chance it will be taken up, a lot of times it just ends up being a waste of time to do that because you're expending a lot of resources. You only have a few staff in your office and um, you're doing other things like helping constituents with constituent services, or you are reading through legislation. And it doesn't make a lot of sense then to expend a lot of resources coming up with new legislative ideas when you know those legislative ideas have no chance of going anywhere. And that's not just true for what people think of as the backbenchers, like people who are not, you know, in with the leadership team or they're freshman members of Congress. It's basically true broadly in Congress that members of Congress can no longer get their ideas debated and heard. And, and that's really unfortunate. It doesn't mean that it's, it never happens, but it's pretty rare. It's pretty unusual. Most things now come top down. Most, most of the process is highly centralized. That sounds incredibly frustrating. I can very frustrating. Yeah. Were there any specific issues in your community or more broadly in the state of Michigan that you observed needed to be addressed, but weren't allowed to be by this top down system? Yeah. Yeah. uh, The, I think one that people can um, relate to that was pretty recent was the George Floyd killing Mm. and criminal justice reform. There was broad appetite for criminal justice reform. And and also, um, Breonna Taylor is from my community originally, from Grand Rapids, Michigan. Mm. So there was was a broad desire for criminal justice reform in my community and in many communities around the country. And in, in my community, we had a lot of protests and a lot of concern about the fact that our justice system is broken. And I offered a bill to end qualified immunity. I introduced this legislation. I introduced a lot of other legislative ideas as well. But on the criminal justice reform side, you would think that with so much appetite across the country for criminal justice reform, the two sides would get together and come up with some kind of compromise that they put legislation on the House floor and on the Senate floor as well and allow us to debate these measures in a real way and allow us to offer amendments and ideas. But there is none of that. Each side, the Democratic side and the Republican side, took a take it or leave it approach to justice reform. They, um, in some sense, intentionally put, I mean, not in some sense, in a real sense, (laughs) intentionally put bills on the floor that they knew the other side wouldn't take up for one reason or another so that they could say, look, we offered something, we tried to resolve it, and the other side didn't want to come our way. So both Republicans and Democrats did that. Each side said, look, we tried to resolve it, but the other side didn't want to come our way. But instead of allowing a robust debate on the floor of the House and the Senate, um, I can speak for the House at least, we didn't have any such debate. It It was just take it or leave it, here's the legislation. And that's a recipe for not getting, not getting things done. We can get into the motives for all that there, but I think there are a lot of political reasons why they do this. They want to, you know, rile up their base and say, this is, you know, the other side's the bad side. I think there's also, there's also a desire not to give President Trump any credit. And I've been very critical of President Trump, but I would never try to keep a bill off his desk because I don't want him to get credit for it, um, for signing it. But I think that kind of stuff does go on in Congress. Um, and it very clearly does go on. And that's unfortunate because it means that things don't get done. It is absolutely shameful that we had the George Floyd killing, we had all this unrest, 
for you know injustices mm -hmm. and not a single piece of legislation was passed to address these issues and yeah. um, I mean passed and signed into law uh, they were passed by each chamber but not passed by both chambers and signed into law um, and that is a real shame seems more like a popularity contest than politics yeah yeah yep and I I'd like to talk about your role in all of this and your perspective on this from the, the point of view of being a person who has consistently vocalized your thoughts on the shortcomings of the two-party system and the fact that these issues are pervasive, affecting not only members of Congress, but everyone across the country. Mm -hmm. Despite all of this, in a 2019 CNN article that reported on your decision to leave the Republican Party, you were called the loneliest member of Congress, um, and you're often depicted as the lone dissenting voice. I want to know if you agree with this assertion, and... If so, like, what is the what is the thing that you think is preventing your former colleagues in Congress from speaking out? And why do you think the media frames what you're saying as controversial when it seems like this is something a lot of people across the country can identify with? I mean, in truth, I do sometimes feel lonely when I'm in Congress. You know, mm. I'm no longer in Congress, so um, I, I guess I'm not as lonely now. But <laughs> when, when you're when you're over there. I had some great allies, you know, there was, there, I had some great friends as well, but a lot of times you do feel like uh, you're the only person willing to stand up to the system in, um, in really concrete terms and in a broad way. I mean, not just in a party specific way. There's, you know, I could think of like a, maybe a couple other representatives who are who are willing to buck the system more broadly, but it's pretty unusual. It's pretty rare. Mm -hmm. And so you do feel you do feel pretty lonely when you're there. You there just the incentives are all messed up. The incentives are all out of order. The incentives are such that it's more useful for the for the member of Congress to spend time being an entertainer mm -hmm. than to spend time actually working on policy or legislation. And the media also drive this sort of system. The media are, are in large part culpable here too. And mm -hmm. I, I think that they are too often given a pass for our broken system. But just like members of Congress, the media are not reviewing legislation in any real way. They've become both victims of the centralized Congress and also perpetrators of it. You know, they've helped um, advance it because when Nancy Pelosi or Kevin McCarthy or the Senate leaders, whenever these people say something about legislation, the media very often take them at their word that this is what it's about. And mm -hmm. this is especially true when the two sides are saying the same thing about the legislation. And sometimes the sides will be opposed on a piece of legislation, but they'll be describing it in the same way. But the description will be totally wrong. And so you end up with a situation where the media then amplify this, um, you know, misunderstanding or misinterpretation of legislation, which then gets filtered to the public. And it makes it very hard for then an individual member of Congress who wants to do the right thing, who wants to follow principles, who wants to represent his or her constituents, it makes it very hard for that person to do the right thing because that person knows that by doing the right thing, he or she will be called out by everyone. The, the leaders of both parties, the media, everyone will say you're mm -hmm. doing the wrong thing, even though you're doing the right thing, because you spent the time reading the bill and understanding it. And the other people did not spend any time reading it and understanding it. And that includes the media. And they just have characters of it partisan, a sort of a partisan character of, of what the bill does. So uh, it can create a very lonely environment where if you want to do the right thing, you have to step out on a limb by yourself, knowing that no one is going to back you up and your constituents are also going to be fed misinformation about the legislation. And that's like goes into another thing. Like we talk, we hear a lot about misinformation. Mm -hmm. The media do help perpetrate, you know, and further a lot of this misinformation. They don't think they're doing it, but they are. And that's like a hard part of this whole thing. I think yeah. that they don't even recognize what they're doing, but they are doing it. And it's very harmful to our country. Mm -hmm. 
Can you give a specific example of, of that happening that was really frustrating to you? Because I've, yes. I've seen many examples, but I'll, I'm interested. I'll give, you what, a, yeah. I'll give you a great example. Mm -hmm. There was a bill described as an anti-lynching bill. Mm -hmm. And it was described by the leadership of both parties. And it was described by all of the media as outlawing lynching at the federal level for the first time. And further described as making lynching a federal hate crime for the first time. But the legislation actually doesn't do any of those things. The legislation doesn't outlaw it for the first time. It doesn't make it a federal hate crime for the first time. It simply takes existing criminal law and essentially restates it. Hmm. So you, there was no furthering of anti-lynching legislation. Nothing new happened. It wasn't newly criminalized. And in fact, it was doubling down on existing law that was harmful in many respects to people of color. Mm. There were criminal laws that were already on the books and um, they would make it simpler to charge people under those laws essentially by removing, it, it gets a little bit complicated, but they essentially created a specific conspiracy statute to replace a general conspiracy statute so it's a little bit complicated and technical but this is like this is our job as legislators mm -hmm. is to read this stuff and understand it so they just removed one of the elements basically from the conspiracy statute to make it easier to, to charge someone with conspiracy but for a lot of the crimes covered in this legislation it would actually be most harmful to people of color and um, people who are already um, being discriminated against through the law this was really frustrating for me Mm -hmm. Because then when you vote no on this, in an effort to protect the rights of people, to protect the rights of Americans and especially people of color, you get attacked as being a supporter of lynching. And yeah. that kind of stuff is really disgusting. But it's why people don't want to be people who it's why people who do their jobs don't want to really be members of Congress anymore, because you can't get, you know, an honest treatment you can't get an honest depiction of what you're doing because the other people aren't interested in doing their jobs the media aren't interested in reading the legislation and doing their jobs and i can call it the new york times on this and the washington post and um even fox news you know it's it doesn't it's it's across the political spectrum they get this stuff wrong and it's really harmful it, it's it really hurts our society and that's just one example but this kind of stuff happens all the time i can imagine also, not only as a member of Congress, a representative, but also as an individual, as a person experiencing it's, these things and living in it's society, it's really hurtful. Yeah. Yes, it's very. People forget that, like, <laughs> that we're individuals. Like, yeah. like I have feelings. I don't want to be depicted in a way that is that is dishonest and doesn't reflect what actually happened. Mm -hmm. So when you have the media out there saying like this is what the bill does, and then it gets doubled down by people. Most people are not reading the legislation, they're just taking the media explanation of it and they're, they're saying that's what the bill does. It's very hard. And then it's, it's hard for a lot of people to understand, well, if what you're saying is true, Justin, then how could it be that both Republicans and Democrats are describing it this way? Are you saying that they're both misrepresenting it? And the answer is yes, they are both misrepresenting it. But you know they're not interested in doing the work and understanding what it is or the people who do understand what it is don't really care because there's obviously someone who understands what's, what's happening. There, there's someone in some leadership office, some staffer or someone who knows what's going on, mm -hmm. but is not interested in correcting it and, um, and explaining what it really does. It seems to gel with the general trend I've observed at least of less and less trust in experts and people putting more trust in media and sort of sensationalism. Yeah. Yeah. And that is and, you know, sometimes experts are fault for that. Yeah. Um, but yes, uh, there's a there's a move toward looking at politics as just a, like a team sport. Mm -hmm. And you just have like people on your team and you trust those people. And it could be media or it could be personalities. Um, it could be members of Congress who are, you know, cheering for your team or, or part of the team. And so they, they trust those people and they don't really think about the actual legislation or what's going on. But look, it's hard to blame the public on any specific item. Mm -hmm. And we can talk about this further, but I'm, 
the point is not to blame the public on any specific item. I, it's understandable why the public, the people in the public are not going to read each piece of legislation. That's totally understandable. Yeah. They're not going to read it because they have, they're busy. They have their own lives. I don't expect them to read the legislation. But I think the public do have a responsibility to think about who they're electing to office and to not blindly follow partisanship where it's just, well, that guy is Republican, so I vote for him or that person's a Democrat, so I vote for that person. I think yeah. that's really dangerous. So sort of moving forward and talking about the public and what we can do. Because again, I think this is an important component of this. We, we, we talk about how bad it is and we realize all of the issues, but it's hard to think about solutions. It's hard to think about how we can move forward and take action. So I wanna ask you, what would you recommend everyday people like me, like my friends who are not representatives in Congress, as, as you know, little say as representatives may have under the centralized system, how do everyday Americans act or what do they do if they don't fully identify with either polarized side? What can we do to counter polarization? Well, one important thing, and I, I can think of a few things, but one important thing is don't feel like you have to be a Republican or a Democrat. Mm -hmm. And don't feel like you must pull one of those levers for, for those parties. Uh, that's a myth, the idea that only those two parties are viable. What's viable is whatever you vote for. If a whole bunch of people vote for an independent or a Libertarian Party candidate or another party candidate, then that person is viable. So you can make your own reality by how you vote. And if everyone decides if the large plurality of people who are not strongly affiliated with the two parties go and vote for something else other than those two parties, then that other thing will be successful. So I think that's really important. The other thing that I think is important is to um, listen more to people in your community and try to meet people who aren't in your circle. So often when I go to part of the community, I might be at a town hall and there will be a lot of people from a particular area and the district has you know, 750,000 people and I'll be talking to a room of maybe a few hundred and the few hundred will come from a, you know, a similar demographic or a similar part of the community. And they'll say, well, look, everyone in this room thinks this. So therefore, that's what your district must think. And I think that there aren't enough people listening to other voices who mm -hmm. aren't their friends or their closed circle. They're not recognizing that there are a diversity of, a diversity of views out there. And that may seem like an obvious thing, but it just, I think it is true that a lot of people just don't even recognize that even within their community, not too far from their home, they're going to find a diversity of views. I think it's important also not to assume malevolence or that the person is a bad person because the person holds different views. People are the products of their environment. When you grow up in a certain environment, uh, I'll give you an example. My dad was a refugee and an immigrant. And my mom was an immigrant as well. And I see things from a certain perspective. When you see things from a certain perspective, that affects how you think about things. And it doesn't mean that you are right, but it doesn't, but it also doesn't mean that you're doing it in bad faith. And I think too often we're assuming bad faith that people who are disagreeing with us, who are opposed to our ideas are doing it in bad faith. And I don't think that's right. I think that there are some people who do it in bad faith for sure. But the vast majority of people are just disagreeing with you because they were raised in a different community, a different environment. They had different parents. They had different experience. So they see things in a different light. And we have to come to them with that understanding and try to persuade them of our ideas, but not on the basis of, well, you're bad or you're evil and I'm good and I'm righteous. I think that touches on something really important, which is empathetic discourse. Mm -hmm. when you're talking about specific topics. Can you give any advice for people who are trying to move towards a more empathetic discourse on how to do so? Well, I think listening to people and not assuming motives mm -hmm. um, is really important. It's, it's hard. I, a lot of times in life, you know, you, you sort of get to know people, um, especially people who are around you a lot, and you start to think you know their motives on things. But I think not assuming motives is a is a good start. Uh, this is especially true, you know, when you're thinking about your congressional representative or someone who's representing you. Like, you wouldn't believe how often on Twitter, 
my motives are assumed because I voted a certain way. And this mm -hmm. goes back to the earlier discussion we have. It's, it doesn't just affect me as a representative, but it also affects everyone in the world. When you interact with people, if you assume that they're doing something out of a certain motive, you're making a mistake. I mean, they, you might be very wrong. And I think that we should come to people and listen to their ideas and have conversations and get the motive part out of it. Sometimes people will very clearly tell you their motives, then you know it. But if they don't tell you what it is, I think you have to be careful about assuming it. Were there any situations like this in Congress or in your own life where you had to work together with someone and be unified and further a certain goal that you both had? in which you utilized these tools of empathetic discourse and it worked really well. I think a lot of times we hear about, you know, sides clashing and negative things happening. But I also want to ask if you had any positive experiences with this, because I think it's important to hear about those as well. Yeah, I had lots of positive experiences like this. I mean, I frequently worked on legislation related to protecting our privacy. This would be legislation related to the Patriot Act or FISA to try to rein them in and end the abuses um, under these programs. And when I was working on things like that, of course, I work with people who share a lot of views with me and also have many views that are very different than mine. You might be coming at it from a different place, but you have to work with people to get something done. I, I don't worry about the fact that their, their general overall worldview might be different than mine in terms of you know, how they approach their legislative work. I'm thinking about the fact that we can work together on this issue that we do both care about and we should set aside our differences uh, and do the right thing for the American people. And, and that happened time and again. And I developed many close friends um, in the Democratic Party when I was a Republican because I, I didn't make it a big deal that I was working with a Democrat. It, to me, it was just another person I can work with mm. and I share some I share some values on a particular issue and I want to get that thing done for the American people. I love that. I think it's really important for us to consider that we are all human beings at the end of the day. And yep. when we dehumanize these issues and when we dehumanize other people, that's really the root of the problem. Absolutely. And in that vein, I want to turn again to things that ordinary Americans can do or situations that ordinary Americans are often in. Um, most of us don't advocate to Congress or to the president, but to our families, our friends, our work colleagues, etc. How do you approach political issues, particularly polarized ones, in your personal life or your day-to-day -day life, especially now that you're not in Congress, with people that you're close to and don't want to risk alienating? You know, I come from a, a family of Palestinian and Syrian background, so we just, we're pretty blunt with each other um, <laughs> <laughs> in our family. Um, you know, my, when you're talking about, say, my parents and brothers, um, in my immediate family right now, I have to be a little more gentle, but they're sort of used to the, the ways of our family. You know, we're, we're pretty direct. That doesn't work in every family. It, it will really depend on the culture of your family and friends. Again, I think the most important thing is not to have, not to assume motives, not to take things personally when someone disagrees with you. It doesn't mean that they um, hate you. It doesn't mean that they're, you know, that they think you're stupid or anything like that. If they say that they think you're stupid, then okay, then you can, you know, then you can be upset about <laughs> it. Know. But yeah, then you know. But um, I think in most cases, uh, we just have to we have to not be so sensitive about every issue we discuss. Mm. I think some people just are too worried about someone not agreeing with them. If we worry too much about that stuff, we don't learn things. We're allowed to be wrong as human beings. You know, yeah. um, I've been wrong about a lot of things in my life. And when I'm wrong about something, I try to learn and get better. And I think that's been, for me, that's been a, a major focus of my life is every day trying to be better than the day before and learning from my mistakes. And, um, and I've made so many um, in my life and just learning from those mistakes and trying not to make the same mistake again. And if we all can um, have that attitude, I think, of just learning from our mistakes and accepting that we, we do make mistakes and we don't know everything, I think we can do a lot of good. I try to apply that every day in my own life, too. I've made a lot of mistakes uh, as well. I think we all have. But I think it's important to take that attitude into situations uh, going forward for all of us. 
I want to discuss also a general trend I've observed in, with regards to advocacy and speaking on political issues, something I like to call electoral nihilism. Particularly, I've observed it at least on the left, but I know people from all across the political spectrum who are experiencing this. On the left, I've heard people talk about not wanting to vote for the lesser of two evils with reference to picking Biden over Trump or something similar. And this kind of speaks to a voter burnout from my perspective, which seems to have become more common, particularly as hyperpartisanship pollutes our political discourse with one another. Under these conditions, I want to ask you, how can we motivate the people around us into action to affect positive change? Uh, what can you give in terms of advice on avoiding burnout, seeing as you've spent a lot of time advocating for these issues yourself and have gone through a lot of very targeted personal critique and backlash? Yeah, and that's tough. But what I would say is we live in a great country and we've been through a lot of tough times in the past and our country has been through some situations that are much more horrific historically than the situations we're in now and we've gotten through and we've gotten better and we've learned from our mistakes and I'm sure we've had lots of people at different times in history who were disenchanted with the political process and couldn't believe what was happening in our country I mean, this is a country that once had slavery. So like this, there have been really bad times in our country. I mean, as yeah. bad as people think time is now, there have been really bad times, really horrific times in our country. And we found ways to move forward. Um, World War II is another example where like there was, that was a really tough time and uh, we got through it and we continued to try to improve our, our system. And so look, it's, it's easy to be down in the moment and say, people are so polarized and things are so bad and I just don't want to participate. But there's a brighter future. I think that things are getting better overall. Mm -hmm. um, as hard as that is to see, look, I, the partisanship, is it kind of at a high? Yes, I think so. Like in, in modern times, is our country in the worst place it's been? No, I don't think that's true. I think that our, our country is much better off. I mean, our economy is stronger than in previous generations. We have more technology than in previous generations. People generally live better now than mm. they did in the past. And it's easy to take all that for granted and, and think things are bad, but let's not um, lose hope. Let's look at the bright future ahead. Um, people are on average healthier, uh, more prosperous. And this is true in the United States. And it's also uh, increasingly true around the world. So there's a bright future for us and we need young people to participate in that process. We need people to be engaged. Look at what's happening with space right now. The idea that we might move in the direction of starting to go to other planets like, um, like Mars. It's beautiful. There's a bright future ahead and it's wonderful. And yeah, I, I encourage people to participate in the process, be engaged because things are getting better and it will be even better for your kids. I think that's a really beautiful perspective on this. And I think it's really important to, think ahead towards better things and what we can do together when we ignore polarization, ignore sides, and think about unity and empathy. I know I've found myself doing this sort of like looking through all of the bad news because I think, you know, the media tends to focus on sensationalism and what's the worst possible thing we can report on at any given moment. And we sort of get in the cycle of, of wanting to be miserable. But I think yeah, it's important when you're an advocate to, to think about how to be optimistic too. Yeah, and social media drives a lot of that. So mm -hmm. for those of you who are looking at social media and thinking everything's like so terrible, remember that social media is not the whole world. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's, there's a tendency on Twitter or Facebook even to focus on the negative, to hear people just taking swipes at each other or, or see people taking swipes at each other. And um, that's not the real world. You know, go out and have conversations with people off of social media think about the beautiful things in the world. You know, there's a lot of positive out there. That doesn't mean we shouldn't strongly challenge the negative. And mm -hmm. that doesn't mean that partisanship's not a problem. As I said, it's, it's maybe the worst it's been in modern times. But look, we have a lot of other advantages, a lot of things going for us that keep driving us forward. Mm. How might we, as participants in democracy, help bring parties back to the middle and encourage negotiation, conflict resolution, and moderation? Yeah, that's a great question. There are a few things I would do. I think it's important that these 
old parties, the Republican Party and the Democratic Party, have some competitors. Mm -hmm. So focusing on changing some of the election laws so that competitors to these parties have a chance is really important. In a state like Michigan, the laws are quite rigged against third parties and independent candidates. Mm. Uh, it's very hard to get ballot access relative to the major parties. It's, um, it's even harder to get the votes because we have things like straight ticket voting. We have other uh, you know, types of barriers to getting on the ballot and it makes it hard for a third party or, or independent candidate to succeed. So focusing on that stuff would be really important. Another idea is like ranked choice voting mm. and other alternative forms of voting that would allow for greater competition. So that's really important. But I would exert more energy as a public on the dysfunction of Congress. There's so much focus on substantive issues, like where you stand on a particular um, subject. Mm. And there's very little focus on the process of Congress. How does Congress actually function? Does it function like the Constitution says it should function or like the rules of the House say it should function? Does it function like schoolhouse rocks? When you look at how Congress actually functions in real life, you'd see that it really doesn't function at all like it's supposed to. And as long as Congress is a very centralized place, as long as you have one person or a few people controlling the entire process, telling everyone what to do, you will end up with an environment that is very partisan. Mm -hmm. And that environment will filter down into the public and it will filter over to the media and it will create a, again, a feedback loop mm -hmm. and you end up with this partisan death spiral. So we have to have a decentralized approach to legislating that is more in line with the way the framers of the Constitution intended it to work, where members of Congress, regardless of their party or background or connection to leadership, members of Congress can participate and they can offer ideas and we can have votes and Congress becomes a discovery process. And that's a really important word to me, that we discover outcomes, mm. that there's a discovery rather than things, are, things being dictated to us. And if we can bring back that discovery process and have people working on legislation, um, I think partisanship will go down. And don't forget also that the more, um, the more votes you have, the more you can differentiate the members of Congress, which also helps um, reduce par partisanship. When people don't vote that many times, they uh, very quickly turn to red team, blue team, because there's not that much to differentiate the different members of Congress. Mm. So we want to have a lot of votes and then people can stand out. They can say, look, I agree with Republicans on this stuff, but I disagree with Republicans on that stuff. I agree with Democrats on this stuff. I disagree with Democrats on that stuff. We want to have a lot of votes so that the public can see um, where the members of Congress stand. As it is, we don't really see much. We see these mm -hmm. very polarized, um, centralized, top-down votes. And there are so few that it ends up just being team red versus team blue. Mm. How would you recommend that again, everyday Americans or individuals push for that level of change in Congress, because that's a huge mm -hmm. structural change from where I'm standing, at least. If I want to go out and and advocate for that change, what would you recommend that I do? That you that you advocate for it just as strongly as you would on any of the issues. Like mm -hmm. there, there are so often people who go to town halls or they go to campaign events during campaign season, and they'll say, I, I really care about um, the war, or I really care about abortion, or I really care about the environment. You know, they have issues they care about. Mm -hmm. And those issues are important, of course. But you have to, um, just as importantly, go out and say, I really care about congressional process. Mm -hmm. I want to know, are you going to go along with leadership on all of these um, votes that tie down the congressional process? Are you going to um, essentially give your voting card to your leader? Are you gonna let the speaker dictate to you how things are gonna work? I think understanding how different members of Congress will approach those things is just as important. In my opinion, it's more important, but it's just as important as the substantive issues. Thank you. I, I'll definitely go out and do that now <laughs> that I know about it. I, I hadn't thought about it that way before, but I, I think that's a really important um, thing for us all to consider is not just pushing on specific issues, but pushing for real structural change when we talk to people.
Yeah, I'll give you another example. Like when, when you see a member of Congress um, vote no because the person was given 30 minutes to read a 5,000-page bill. Really? Instead of, being, instead of being upset that the member of Congress voted no um, because you heard that the bill did good stuff that you liked, mm -hmm. you should thank that member of Congress. You should say, even though I might have liked some of the stuff in that bill as it was described to me, you know, I heard in the news that it does X, Y, and Z, and that sounds good to me, you should say thank you. Thank you for not just taking a bill that's 5,000 pages and just rubber stamping it because you heard there was good stuff. Thank you for doing your job and demanding that you be given time to read the legislation before you vote yes on it. So um, so doing that kind of stuff also can have an impact. You know, just it, it helps reinforce the idea that members of Congress are doing the right thing when they stand on um, process, when they, they stand for the right kind of process that will help restore a, um, a system that functions for the American people and is less partisan. Mm. And I know you've been called a contrarian for doing um, something very like that, uh, saying, you know, I don't have yeah. enough time to read this. Um, I can't vote on it in good conscience. And I, I agree. I think that's a really big issue. Do you have any recommendations for people who are trying to navigate the polarized climate of the news and media? How might we be able to select sources that are not misrepresenting events and representatives of Congress? This is a, uh, that's a very good question. And that, that is a very difficult thing to answer. Yeah. You know, I've, that's something I've struggled with um, my whole time in Congress, um, which, which news sources are trustworthy. And as a member of Congress, I had information that would actually help me sort out whether, whether news sources were um, being honest or dishonest or were doing a, a shoddy job or a really great job because I was in the thick of a lot of the news, right? I'm, uh, it would be legislation that I'm working on or I'm voting on. And so I really knew the details. And when I, when I saw um, Fox News or CNN or MSNBC describe it a particular way, I could know, are they describing it correctly? Are they just getting talking points from the leadership? Are they just being kind of lazy about it? I knew that stuff. For the, for the typical person in the public, that's very hard to sort out. Mm -hmm. And there's not a good answer other than to read a lot of different things and assume that the truth is somewhere in there, that it's, it's some combination of these things, but that there's a lot of flourishes too, that there, there, are, um, there will be embellishment by um, you know, each side, depending on what you know, message they want to send out, that there, there is bias and there's sometimes an agenda um, by people in the news media and you have to be able to understand that and accept that so i think it, at the very least it requires you to have a, a healthy dose of skepticism mm. um and again it uh, goes back to not assuming motives like just because your favorite news network said that a member of congress did x y or z because of this reason don't assume that that's the truth it might be for a totally different reason um, so just keep an open mind um, read a lot of different sources. And if it's an issue you really care about, try to go to the original source. Like if you really, really care about a particular legislative item, then you know maybe you should try to read the legislation. If you're going to go and advocate on it or, um, or if you're going to complain about how someone voted about it uh, on the legislation, you should at least try to understand it to the best of your ability and go to the original source. Go to the actual legislation and, and do your best to, to figure it out. Um, I know that's not a practical thing for most people day to day, but mm -hmm. but um, but if you're really going to be an advocate like that, I think that's I think that's important. But it's just like have a healthy skepticism and read a lot of different things. Just because um, you know you're conservative doesn't mean Fox News is right all the time. Just because you're progressive doesn't mean MSNBC is right all the time or or CNN. You know there mm -hmm. there are. Um, there's a lot of stuff that's, um, that gets shaded. Mm. And if, if someone wanted to read the legislation and access it, how would one do that? So you can go to congress.gov and you can find a lot of the legislation. And this is another thing that the media could do a better job of. Mm -hmm. Because very often when they are talking about bills, you will find that they don't ever cite the bill number. So you really? would, or, or even the actual name of the bill. Um, but the bill number is the most important thing, and that's very rarely cited. But 
if you go to congress.gov, you can often find the legislation. Um, sometimes if it's really sudden legislation, like, um, like has happened recently with a number of very large bills where, um, you know, they're secretly crafting it behind closed doors for five months and then they unleash, you know, a few thousand pages and give you a day to read it or, or, you know, an hour that legislation can be hard to find, Mm -hmm. um, because it doesn't make it onto the system. So, um, so that can be tricky, but generally congress.gov, um, will do the trick. And I, I think, um, you know, one of the things I'd like to work on is maybe trying to make it easier for people to find this stuff. Um, it's, it's very difficult right now. And, and uh, I think I could be helpful in, in working on that. Yeah, um, I, I think that's really important. And if, if you happen to have any resources that we could send out to our audience after this for people to be able to access that legislation, I would love to send that out to people in our follow-up email because I think that's an important yeah, sure. resource for people to have. Awesome. I want to ask one final takeaway question before we end today. Um, if you could give one takeaway to our audience, uh, one actionable step that people could take to reduce the negative impacts of polarization today in their lives, what would it be? One takeaway from our discussion. Uh, to love other people. <laughs> um, to not to not assume to not assume the worst of others. Mm-hmm. Um, to understand that we're all human beings and uh, we all make mistakes and uh, we all need to learn from each other. You know, we, we need to have more conversations and more openness. And, um, and I, you know, what I'll often hear in response to this stuff is, well, there are some really bad people. Yes, there are some really bad people. Mm-hmm. I think we all accept that, but I, I don't believe that's the majority of people. I believe that's a, uh, a relatively small number of people. I think most people um, are good and try to do good, but um, you know we all fall short and we all have errors and we make mistakes and we're we're all the product of our own environment. You know we mm-hmm. we have biases that um, develop through our own lives and um, and the only way we can get past that is to have um, genuine trusting conversations and um and not having contempt for other people so you know let's just try to be more loving and caring and and respectful to others thank you so much representative amash i know i've taken a lot away from this conversation and it's been really lovely to discuss this with you um yeah uh thanks rachel yeah yeah (laughs) (laughs) it's been wonderful i've really enjoyed this and i i'm sure our audience has taken away a lot from this too yeah, um, no, I had a, I had a great time. I had yeah. a great time. That concludes Crashing the Party, the final episode in Speak Now Series 1, Dismantling Division. I hope you enjoyed yet another conversation brought to you by the Advocacy Project from Cornell University, where we make it our mission to teach the basic skills in persuasion, public speaking, and effective communication to anyone with an internet connection. Today's episode is co-sponsored by Cornell ILR and the Cornell Institute for Politics and Global Affairs. To learn more about the Advocacy Project's story, as well as our co-sponsors, make sure to check out advocacypro.org. Again, that's advocacypro.org, where you can take the first steps in wielding the power of your words, even when those of others might falter. Until next time, thank you for listening.